Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with another episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction. Today we have on Brad Bonner Jr. Brad is a comedian, a magician. He's doing some really meaningful work around depression and suicide prevention um, and blending that with comedy, which we'll get into how that works. Uh, but a, a totally fascinating guy. He's got some uh, some stuff on Drive Our Comedy, if you've caught any of those. Um, phenomenal comedian and magician. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Well, it's good to be here. Good. How far removed are we as cousins? Because your your mom and my dad are cousins, which makes us, does that make us second cousins? Or I think that makes us second cousins. So my mom would be your first cousin once removed. Yeah. So, uh, so I think you're right. Uh, so yeah, uh, family here, which is kind of unfortunate for listeners because we got some craziness going on. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you've, you've been able to, to go out and, uh, and do comedy and you've done some awesome gigs. I, I see you traveling all over the place, doing really cool stuff. Yeah. It's taken me How around you, the world. I've been to Kyrgyzstan and Japan and. Awesome. How, how did you get into it though? How do you become a comedian? Um, so I started, I did magic as a hobby since I was a kid. We used to ride our bicycles down to the magic shop in Sacramento and um, I, I just always liked it as a hobby, and I always loved performing. I played guitar and sang and played in bands, and um, I just started getting more and more into magic. My, my uh, first wife and uh, I, we didn't have a TV for the first six years we were married, and so I spent every night studying magic. And uh, then I started doing, um, you know, I was doing kids shows, found out adults are way easier to fool than kids are. <laughs> and they pay more money and started doing corporate events. And I never did like serious, you know, the dramatic wind blowing in my hair magic. I did close up stuff on stage and, uh, you know, pack small, play big is what I was always taught by the old magicians that I hung out with. And uh, mm. started to, I was doing comedy, just talking about my kids in between. And one time a friend said, uh, I was, it was a dinner, dinner event. They would hire me to do close up magic and then they did comedy. And the friend of mine booking it, he says, you need to do, just do some stand-up. All that stuff you talk about your kids and that force too many and it's hard to decide which one to get rid of and all that. He said, just get up and try some stand-up because next month I want you to do 10 minutes. And uh, that got me the bug. And that was probably 20, I don't know, maybe 24 years ago, 23, 24 years ago. And so then I started working on a whole just stand-up set. So I've got... You know, I could I could do an hour of comedy magic, or I could get up and do an hour of just straight stand up comedy, and it gives me a big arsenal and um, a variety to be able to work any kind of crowd or any kind of venue. I've done events where you know I'm the only white guy in the room. I've done biker bar events. I've done you know um, I, I've gone in as, a, as an executive. I actually had somebody. It was a spoof. They had me come in as the uh, secretary. What was I? The uh, I don't remember what the the position I. But they had me come in as a government official, um, with a suit and tie, and pretend like I was this expert at numbers and math, oh, and just funny. to screw with people. And so it, uh, uh, the comedy, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it's an addiction. It gets in your blood. 
Well, so when you said that you and your wife didn't have a TV for the first six years, I thought yeah. you were going to tell us that you just like stood and performed stand up for her every night. No, not for her. Like that was that was your entertainment since you didn't have a TV. She's like, I want to see, I want to see this episode. I want to, I want to see this this skit. You know, we did so much reading and so much visiting with other people when we didn't have a TV. We really did. Oh, yeah. And then we oh, got yeah. a uh, we our first TV was a nine inch screen. It was a TV VCR combo, so we could play videos for our kids. <laughs> That's awesome. I was telling my son the other day about my first video game. How we had a thirteen inch black and white TV. Uh, <laughs> And he's like, well, he doesn't really quite have dimensions down. So he's like, what's 13 inch? I'm like, well, it's about the size of your iPad, (laughs) (laughs) except it weighed about, you know, a hundred times more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, was this big old box, but yeah, that's funny. Well, so what's interesting is you didn't, you didn't set out to be a comedian. No, I, but I always loved entertaining, but, um, you know, since when people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always wanted to entertain. And people always said the same thing to me. They said, well, you can't do that for a living. You need to do something else. Um, yeah. You can't make a living. It can't be your livelihood. You need to have a regular and just do that as a hobby and something on the side. Um, and then I met some I met uh, some magician uh, guys who were um, made a living doing entertainment and they weren't famous. And, and I asked some very specific questions of, you know, can you do this for a living without being famous, without, you know, being in the right place at the right time? And this guy's name was Gary Kurtz. He's, uh, um, he's famous in the magic community. And he sat down with me and I said, don't, don't BS me. I want some straight answers. Can you make a good living? And he says, what's a good living? I go six figures plus. He goes, yeah. He goes, the guys that make good money as comics, as magicians, you don't see them on TV. They're working corporate events. And then it becomes a business like any other business. You have a product and you market it and you have clients and you have customers customer satisfaction and you get referrals from them and you get more clients. And once I had that frame of mind, I saw this picture of, Hey, this, I can do this as a business and it doesn't rely on me living in Los Angeles and doing free guest sets at every comedy club that I can get into just so somebody will see me and I'll be famous. Um, you know, I've got comic friends, they're in their sixties that are still banking on, they're going to be famous and somebody's going to see them and they're going to get a sitcom. And it's, you know, they've been doing that since they were in their twenties. And yeah, I just, it's really interesting. Yeah. I just look at it as a business where you have a product and you market it. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great point. I think a lot of people do look at comedy as, uh, you either hit it big or, or you don't hit it at all, but seeing that distinction where you can run it like a business and you can do these corporate events and you can do these other routes where you're a comedian, a comedian um, who's actually putting money on the table versus yeah. always holding out for that, you know, huge ticket item. Right. Right. Just, it, it yeah, is interesting. Just a business format. That's cool. I like that. And I think the comedy, I think, um, since I was a kid, that was what kept me, um, going, um, uh, I, I look at, um, you know, we were, uh, my, my comedy show I'm doing now, I have a comedy, the comedy show about depression and suicide that um, got started. I found a suicide note that I wrote in the sixth grade about a year and a half ago. And uh, I, I've re- it's really made me really retrospective. Look at my depression and, and what's got me through and keeps me going. And I think just from elementary school, it was always listening to the teacher and the kids. And if anybody said anything that I could twist and make into a joke, that was like my little shot of uh, serotonin and some dopamines. <laughs> and that's what got me through school was getting those laughs and getting that reaction. It's kind of like a little shots of heroin, I guess. 
Yeah. I mean, there are some people that just have that in their blood to, to entertain and, you know, bring a smile to people's faces. It reminds me, actually, I had um, William Hung on the podcast. Really? Yeah. Yeah. From uh, American Idol. Yeah, I remember him. Um, and, you know, he became famous, uh, not because he was a great singer, but for other reasons. Right. For the novelty. Uh, yeah. Well, and I, and I, I really probed him about, tell me how good of a singer you think you really are. I wanted him to give me a number. I asked him literally like on a scale of one to 10, you know, like tell me in all honesty, how yeah. good of a singer do you think you are? And uh, in his wisdom, he didn't answer. <laughs> but, but what he did say is he said exactly what you just said. He said, for me, it's not at all about how good of a singer I am. It's all about are the people entertained by what I do? Ah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and so he said, you know, based on what I do, nobody cares if I'm a good singer uh, because they want to be entertained, you know, in a, in a different way. So I like that. I love that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you mentioned this like fairly serious note that just got thrown in there. About the, <laughs> the idea that, you know, by the way. Grade, yeah. By the way, uh, what did it say as a sixth grader? What are you writing? So, so here's what's funny is at first I, when I read, I read it, I kind of laughed about it and I thought, oh, that's so cute. Sixth grade. You know, that was kind of like my mindset. And there was no date on the note. And what it was, I had a little three-by-five card box that I used to keep notes and stuff in when I was a little kid. And my, and my wife and I, we found it. We were going through some stuff. And um, in the sixth grade, I sat next to Michelle Madsen in Mr. Jensen's class. And I had a huge crush on her because I'm left-handed. She's right-handed. And our elbows would touch while we would write papers. And that's a big deal when you're in the sixth grade, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so my note said, I don't want to live anymore. I just want to die. No one will ever miss me. And then my next entry after that said, I think Michelle Madsen's a fox. So that was my carbon dating system. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I knew instantly. Mr. Jensen's class, sixth grade. Wow. I remember. And I thought it was funny. Then I thought, holy crap. Sixth grade? I struggle with, I'm 56 now. And I've struggled since at least the sixth grade um, that I know of. And, um, I don't know. It was just kind of sobering. And it got me really thinking about that, that it's only been the last maybe two years of my life that I've ever been honest about it. Even with a doctor, even with health professionals, you know, I was um, maybe, it must've been maybe seven, eight years ago was the first time I ever talked to my doctor about depression. And I just kind of hem hawed. Um, yeah, I think I might have some depression. And, and that was kind of my conversation. But the truth was I was sleeping with my gun in my hand with my finger on the trigger night after night on the road, just hoping I'd wake up and finish it. I mean, that was night after night. I would wake up just going, oh, I don't want to make it through this day. And, and, but yet my conversation was just kind of, well, I might, yeah, I get a little sad, you know, maybe I should try something. And so these last two years, I've really been um, honest about here's what's going through my head and here's how I wake up and here's what it feels like, um, you know, what's going on in my head. And so it, uh, I started working on putting together a comedy show about depression and suicide. As comics, we'll talk about anything on stage. We do talk about everything on stage. And so I started working with some other comedian friends, say, would you guys be willing to get up and be dead honest in front of an audience of strangers and talk about suicide attempts, our 5150 lockups. Uh, in California, 5150 is the uh, code for a mental health lockup, uh, involuntary lockup in a mental institution. Um, we talk about medications, what we like and don't like, and um, 
we started having this conversation about what would the show look like and how would we format it. I started interviewing doctors and psychiatrists and psychologist friends and asked them, what would you want to see talked about? You know, what would you want to see in a show like this? Um, even Robin Williams uh, HBO special I watched, and it's two hours about his life. It's a documentary about his life, and they don't even mention depression. Not even a word, not even a topic. And I thought, wow, they didn't even do it there. And so uh, we came up with this format for this show, and uh, we did our first show in January. And they've just been, it's been life-changing for us. It's been life-changing for the people that attend the show. Um, and it's just been, a, it's been an incredible journey. And, you know, and it's just starting to snowball and take off and do its own thing now. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's so um, so unique, such a unique approach to such a challenging topic. And there's a yeah, ton to dive into here. That? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I am curious, you remember back even in the sixth grade, kind of having those emotions, those feelings, those thoughts? I kind of, I remember high school, definitely. And, and maybe and junior high school as well. But I didn't, I didn't realize it went back that far to, to elementary school. And I think, um, you know, the, the more I delve into the, especially with this show, we spend, my wife and I, Annette, we spend so much time educating ourselves about mental health and mental wellness. And um, we did a mental health first aid uh, course, uh, got certified in mental health first aid. And the more I learn, I think I look at mental with the d- depression in specific, especially mine, is that there's kind of two types. You have like type one diabetes, where from the time you're a kid, you have a chemical imbalance in your body that you will have your whole life and you will always have to medicate for it because you have a chemical. There's one of your organs in your body that that doesn't have the right chemicals it's supposed to. Whereas type two diabetes usually is brought on by poor diet. You know, you you contribute to it. Um, and you can also reverse it to some effect. You can diet, you can exercise, and you can either reduce or even eliminate your medications. And I think depression is a lot like that. And for me, I think I, I just, I have that type one kind of depression where I just have this chemical imbalance um, that will always be there and that I'll always have to address. Um, therapy helps, you know, meditations helps, but I, I still have to take some some kind of a supplement or medication for me to not just wake up wanting to just, you know, end that day. So that's just well, my... Well, I mean, that's one of the challenging things to mental health, right, is uh, because some level of these experiences and emotions is very typical. Yeah. For a but period- it's, it's like... It's like that whole gray space of where does it go from being like, this is just part of living life that I'm having some of these thoughts or feelings to no, this is not, this is not typical. This is something that, um, that really needs to be addressed. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle is because they can continually convince themselves like, well, this is just, this is just normal. I just am not that good at coping with it. Everybody's better at doing this than I am. Yeah. 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 It's just a phase I'm going through. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. that it's that duration. And I think, um, and we talk about this in the show. I think what's um, so the show is uh, it's four comics. I didn't want a, sh- a one man show about me. I wanted com- I wanted people to see what conversation looks like, what it looks like to talk about it. And I can't do that with me by myself on stage. So it's four comedians. We everybody comes out does five minutes of comedy. I want the audience to know us. This is us. This is what we do for a living. This is our safe space. The world's good when we're up here on this stage. And then we come back out and we answer five questions. 
And those five questions cover everything about, you know, they, they really, uh, all my notes with my doctor friends and psychiatrist friends, I can, I can take those notes and overlay these five questions and everything fits underneath one of these five questions. And so we get up there and we talk about all of our stuff and, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been therapeutic for us, um, for the, every show we do, we get, uh, emails and private messages and phone calls about how it just changed their perspective on what they do. But we talk about, um, bad advice that people give that is just, that, that isn't helpful. <laughs> One of the questions is what do others do that makes it worse? And, Everybody goes through depression. That's part of the human condition. But it's usually because of something, being that there's, uh, you know, transition periods in life is are, are very high depression. You know, you're going from high school into college or you graduate and you're going to a job or you're changing jobs or you're moving locations or somebody died and, you, and, and that depression will come on and it's for a period and then you change things in your life and the depression goes away. And that's most, that's normal people's, um, struggle with depression. It's a cycle. And, and so they want to give advice based on what worked for them. But for me, my depression has nothing to do with how good my life is. I could, you could write down on paper every, I mean, you look at Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, you look at some of these people who have died by suicide and on paper, it doesn't make any sense. And the depression has its own course where it just comes on and you feel it and it's overwhelming and it doesn't, there's no good reason for it. Going out in the sunshine or, or exercising, you know, those things may help, but they're not enough to, to, to get through it. Yeah. Well, I love how you, what I love about your show is, I mean, obviously just the whole dynamic of trying to uh, balance making suicide something relatable and comedic at some level yeah. while also having some legitimate tools and resources built in. I mean, that's that's a challenge that-, uh, that Yeah, I, mean, I didn't want just, it to be a free-for-all where we just get up there and BS. I, I wanted yeah, to yeah. get to it, yeah. Well, just being able to find how to do that is such a, a creative endeavor. But how, so how do you make suicide something that you can <laughs> smile at or laugh at or- yeah, it's, well, one thing, I have workman blood in me, so we uh, have a dark, twisted sense of humor. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and so uh, it's funny. I had a, a television reporter come out here to our house, and they spent about an hour interviewing me to do a, um, a piece about what I'm doing. And he goes, so I got to ask you, um, it's a comedy show about depression and suicide. Give me a funny suicide story. He goes, is that fair? Is that a fair question? I go, that's a fair question. I go, and I'll give you, this is, a, this is an honest to God, true story. It was about, about three months ago, um, a 17-year-old girl that my wife and I both know really well sends my wife a text message, and she says, I'm standing on the bridge. Um, I love you guys. Um, you'll get along fine without me. Goodbye. And my wife panics. She hands me the phone. She says, I don't know what to say to her. You need to call her. Call her. I don't know what to say. You struggle with depression. You'll know what to say. So I grab the phone. I call her. I could barely hear her voice. Um, you got to understand, I live 15 minutes from the Forest Hill Bridge. It's the fourth highest bridge in the country. The Golden Gate Bridge is 350 feet. Forest Hill Bridge is 720 feet with a little stream running underneath it. You know, yeah. 1% of the people survive off the Golden Gate. Nobody survives off the Forest Hill Bridge. Yeah, that's crazy. So I get her on the phone. I go, what's going on? I could barely hear her voice. Um, I, go, uh, I go, I know you don't want to die. You just want that pain to stop. I go, where are you at? She said, I'm standing on the bridge. I parked my car and I'm standing on the bridge right now. 
And I said, what bridge are you at? She said, Fair Oaks. I said, Watt Avenue, Fair Oaks? She goes, yeah. I go, that's a shitty bridge to jump off of. But it's only like 40 feet. What are you thinking? She goes, well, there's hypothermia. I go, it's not that cold. Did you do some research to find out how cold the water has to be and how long it's going to take? You're going to like sprain your ankle and flop around for two hours waiting for hypothermia? And she started laughing. And I said, why don't you come hang out with us? We're doing karaoke with some friends. Come over here and hang out with us. She goes, okay. I go, what are you doing? She goes, I'm walking back to my car. I'll see you guys in about 20 minutes. And that laugh, it's an honest to God, true story. And that laughter got her out of her head. It really got her to stop and step back and laugh at it. And she stayed the night on our couch that night. And I think when you can take tragedy and darkness and when you can laugh at it, it becomes less than. And it gives you some power over it, and it and uh, it doesn't. It becomes its own thing, and it doesn't encompass and define who you are when you can laugh at those tragic things. Yeah. I, well, I think first off, that's a great example. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that everybody can laugh at, at uh, you know in that moment, come up with that. Yeah, kind of it's probably good. Right? I'm not on the suicide hotline. I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what kind of gun you gonna use? A 22, dude. You need to call the I'm gonna wound myself hotline. Really. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do think you're right. You know, you get into these mental like spirals and it, you just need that thing to kind of snap you out of it. Yeah. And laughter does. I mean, you laughter changes the chemical compound in your brain instantly. Yeah. You instantly. Have, there's dopamines and serotonins and there's things that are that are that are released when you laugh at something. Um, and I've had some of the most tragic times in my life. I've had friends call me and just say the darkest things that just rattled me and, and snapped me out of it. Um, I had a dog die. This was um, about it was uh, it was about seven eight years ago, and this was my once in a lifetime dog. You get I think you get one super incredible dog, and this dog bandit. He did two hundred thousand miles on the road with me in four years. So he flew with me. He traveled with me. Um, he was a medical alert service dog. So he went. Every, everybody loved bandit, and he got into some poison, and I had to put him down. And it took about a week, and I was just heaving, sobbing, heartbroken. I just loved this dog. And a week after he died, a really good friend of mine called me because only a really good friend would say this to you. And he said, what happened with Bandit? And I said, well, we think he got into some poison. And he says, uh, you think he did it on purpose? <laughs> I go, what? He goes, maybe he got tired of your show, dude. Learn some new jokes. And as dark and twisted as that sound, that was the best laugh. I, I mean, I just belly laughed and it just, he knew that's what I needed right then, you know, and um, it got me to laugh and it got me out of my head. And, uh, you know, you need those, uh, you need those friends that can do that. So, so is it, is it a lot of that on stage? I mean, what does the actual yes. event look like? So we, um, everybody does five minutes and I leave it up to the comics, um, what they want to use for content for the five minutes that they do. So the first 25 minutes of the show is like going to a comedy show. Um, but I really, I I have to get the audience used to laughing at darker things. And so, uh, that story about the girl on the bridge, that's why I start the show. I come out and I just say, you know, two weeks ago, you know, two months ago, 17 year old girl on, and, and it gets a laugh and it gets them used to laughing at, at a dark situation. I talk about my dog dying and my friend calling me. Um, I talk about, I had a traffic accident where, um, I, a homeless guy ran a red light in front of me and I ran him over and killed him. 
And I, I say, I can't joke about that, but it doesn't stop my friends. And I tell them some of the things my friends said that got me to laugh. And, and, and once I could laugh at that stuff, it really, it took a lot of the weight and the heaviness off of it. And so I get them used to kind of laughing at those dark things that that's okay to laugh at that. And then the comics come out and do their five minutes. And some of them do their material about their depression and about their struggles. Um, some of the comics just come out and they make you laugh for five minutes. So you just kind of see who they are and what they do. Then we come back out and it's the panel of four, four comics. I kind of give, uh, at that point I give, uh, tell them this is how the show came about. I found a suicide note in the sixth grade and started working on this. I've interviewed doctors and we have these five questions and these five questions are what we're going to run through. And that the whole rest of the show is that I can tell you this, there is more laughter in the second part of the show than there is in the first. We laugh so much more during our panel than we even do when we're doing our regular stand-up comedy because we're very real. Um, there's a camaraderie that we build as a team before we get up on stage. Um, I change the comics out regularly, but uh, um, we have a dinner together. Um, we know each other's stories. And so there's this camaraderie. And then we run through these five questions. And um, those five questions just open up lots of doors and opportunities for conversation. And we actually um, have giveaway cards that have the five questions on it. If you want to have a conversation with somebody that struggles with depression, here's five questions you can ask them that'll open up dialogue. They're not judgmental. Um, it's a, they're just a really good opportunity for people to open up and talk about what it feels like and looks like to them. So. Yeah, well, I also wonder, you know, that second half, if it, it's to your point of you've got to get people to a space where they feel like they can laugh at some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure that there are people that are listening to the podcast that are like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I can laugh at that yet. But getting them to a place to just see it differently, feel a little bit different about you know, and it. It's amazing. We have people in our show and we're, and we're very aware of this that have lost friends and loved ones to suicide. Um, we had VSP Global. We did a show for them. They're a, a corporate client. And um about a month ago, and they have 8,000 employees. They have 2,000 just at their office in Sacramento at their headquarters, and they live streamed it. And um, on our Facebook page, um, someone who didn't work for VSP, someone had made a comment, I lost my boyfriend to suicide, and I don't think there's anything funny about this at all. And before I could even respond, somebody from VSP Global responded and said, they just came to our office and they performed this show and it was tasteful and it was funny and insightful and enlightening and you would do well to go to this show. Um, one of the ladies from VSP Global had lost her husband two years ago to suicide and she came to one of our regular comedy shows at a club and her friend sitting with her, I go, how did she react to it? You know, having a lot, she goes, she laughed so hard. There were times when she laughed and she'd poke me with her elbow and go, you probably don't even know why that's funny, huh? <laughs> and so, you know, we're aware of who's in the audience that it's people who have struggled and have lost loved ones, but, um, it's not, um, we make fun of ourselves and, um, and we just, we find a way to laugh at it and it's kind of dark. Um, that's why the, the name of the show is one degree of separation, a funny look at depression and suicide. And we wanted the title to be a little disturbing, um, so that people know what they're going into, you know, before they get there. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's, I mean, just broadly, and we've dealt with this for decades, but that broadly there's this whole stigma behind, uh, mental health and, uh, mental illness and and what it means to have mental illness and and so I yeah. think that to your point there's a certain level of being able to take ownership of it that yeah. comes from seeing it differently uh, reacting to it differently than what we've been trained to do yeah and you know it's it's fun it's uh, if you have diabetes you just accept that oh so you you take medications for that 
right. you don't you don't think anything less. You don't think like it's you're weak or that you're. And, but yet, if you have schizophrenia or depression, you take medications like, oh, you know, you know, it's it's still there's still that shame um, to say, yeah, I struggle with mental health issues and I've got to take medication to deal with it. But it really is. It's a it's just it's a different organ that that for some people needs uh, needs to be medicated to work with. Yeah, I wonder this is just me, like my own head spinning. I wonder if it has to do with. As humans, we we feel this pressure to solve problems that are put before us. When you have somebody that has a physical illness or ailment, you know, like diabetes, I know yeah. there's not anything I can do to to solve that. I'm, you know, I, I've right. medical training. There's nothing I can do. Like, you know, are you running low? I can give you a Snickers. Like, right. I, but when it comes to mental health, we all feel like. There's just I can this, fix this. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like for whatever reason. Oh, I can fix this. I've been I've, I've been there. You know, like yeah. I I, I, I felt sad it. before. I can fix this. Right, right. Yeah, I think there is. I think there's a lot of that. And just getting away from that and recognizing that that it's not the same thing, right? Feeling sad uh, is not yeah. the same thing as having mental illness, and and that we're not yeah. equipped to to fix it. And there are a lot of different ways to to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the, the show, these five questions that we do. Um, the first one is what's it feel like? Describe it physically. What do you feel? And everybody on stage describes it and it's different for everybody. And it, um, one of the things that questions does is it really, um, asking somebody that it really gets them to identify it and make it, 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 it becomes its own thing where it's not encompassing. It's when you can label something and say, well, it feels like this. It really kind of takes it away from you. Um, so we describe what it feels like physically. The second question is what do others do that makes it worse? And we talk about things people say, things people do, um, you know, the advice that people give that just isn't helpful. The next question is Real what quick, do people though. Yeah. What are some of those things that surface? What are, what are some of the things that you hear most often around? What do other thing other people do that makes it worse? I, well, people use their own point of reference to give advice. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, you know, people think, well, I had depression once. Have you tried getting out in the sunshine? And it's like, it's like, I woke up wanting to die this morning and you're telling me to go outside and get some sunshine. And that, that, those are the kinds of things, um, people just get over it. It's just in your head. Um, I used to get, you know, it's cause you're not reading your scriptures enough. You uh-huh. know, if you were closer to Jesus, you wouldn't have your depression, you know, maybe uh-huh. you need to get things right with God, then your depression would go away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, and it didn't, it, those are the kinds of things where it's like, you're not doing enough. You're as opposed to, you know, it's like, and I, and I, I always turn it around. I go, so will that work with diabetes too? Right. What? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if I told you I had diabetes, would you tell me to go out and get some sunshine or that I need to read my scriptures more or that I need to pray harder or more often or be, you know, go to church more than my diabetes would go away? No, you'd tell me to go to the doctor. You'd go tell me to go to professionals who can help me with it. Right. Um, and so that's one of the things, you know, those are some of the things that people say that um, that are, aren't helpful. Um, and and it's, it's hard because they do it with good intentions. And, uh, so, you know, we realize they're not doing it to try and be hurtful, but that's, it's like, ah. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Yeah. It makes total sense. It reminds me when you talked about, you know, them saying, well, you just need sunshine. You're like, well, I woke up, you know, wanting to die this morning. And you're telling me to just go stand in the sun. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, it's an old, old article, uh, from fast company called change or die. 
Um, and in it, they talk about, uh, he talks about tests that they ran with um, people who'd got, undergone coronary artery bypass surgery and the likelihood that they actually changed their behavior in life after mm. having gone through that. And it's like, they have all, you know, I literally just had coronary artery bypass surgery and the doctors are showing me that if I don't change my behavior, I'm going to be back in, or I'm going to be dead. And yet the percentage of people that actually change their behavior after that um, is phenomenally low. I mean, it's like 65 or 70% of people who undergo one come back for another one. Yeah. Um, and, And what they found was, yeah, they have all this information about that they're you know not going to live as long and that they're going to die if they don't change their behavior. But what they're telling people is, hey, if you get rid of all of this food and these things that you're finding joy in today, you'll be able to <laughs> yeah. live you know another thirty years. If you live miserable, you can live longer. Yeah, and that's what they're saying to themselves, right? They're like, yeah, I get that I can live another thirty years if I change all this stuff, but you have to realize that every day is misery for me, and I don't wow. want to live another thirty years the way that you're talking about. Um, And so what they found in that study was that when they actually frame it and show people that, no, you're not just going to live, you know, another 30 years, but you're actually going to live 30, you know, good years. years. Yes. Yes. And that's when people actually change their behavior, which it it just made me think of that when you're like, yeah, go get some sunshine, go enjoy yourself. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good question. What do others do that makes it worse? So these questions. Well, so what are the the other questions? So the first one, the first one really gets them to name it and label it. The second one is really a good venting question. What do others do that makes it worse? Um, the next one is what do others do that makes it better? And then we talk about things that are helpful, you know, friends, Hey, if you need anything, I'll come over. You're struggling. Hey, well, give me a call. That's so different than somebody just showing up and saying, come on, we're going to go for a drive. Come on, I'm going to take you out. We're going to go, let's go grab a drink. Let's go grab some ice cream. Let's go do something. That's so much more effective as opposed to, hey, call me if you really get dark. Um, The other thing is like my wife and I, we have a one to 10 scale. So instead of asking, how are you feeling? Because if you ask somebody who struggles with depression, how are you feeling? We'll say fine. But fine really means I kind of want to die. It's on my list. It's just not at the top of the list right now. And I don't really want to talk about it. Okay. So asking on a one to 10 scale, where are you at on a scale of one to 10? Uh, it's very specific and you'll get an honest answer. Uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor, he's, an, he's, a, he's one of my closest, closest friends. He's in South Dakota and he was one of the guys I interviewed. And he said, it's interesting. If I ask somebody, are you struggling with depression? They'll lie to me and they'll say, no, no, I'm fine. I'm good. No, I'm all right. Yeah, maybe it might get a little sad sometimes. But if I ask them specific, are you, do, you, do you think about suicide? Are you feeling suicidal? He goes, I get an honest answer. They'll say, I think about it. All right, well, you think about it, how much, you know, do you have a plan? Do you know how you would do it? No, I don't have a plan. Or yeah, I do have a plan, but I haven't started making steps towards that plan. And he goes, I'll get, when I ask specific questions, I get specific answers. And so we have a one to 10 scale. Ask on a scale of one to 10, 10 being dead, you know, one, eh, I'm feeling eh, a little iffy. Um, Where are you at and what do you need when you're at that number? And to have those conversations about that scale when you're not in the depression, you know, when you're feeling all right, all right, here's, you know, on one, when I'm at a, my wife knows if I'm higher than a five, if I tell her I'm at a six or a seven, that she knows that um, she needs resources besides her to help me. Mm. And so she'll sh- send uh, some of my comic friends. Um, she'll send some of my closest friends. Hey, Brad's struggling today, you know, and uh, she knows I need something more than, than she, just her by herself can do that. It's um, that I'm getting an, that I'm spiraling. 
And so that is very helpful when it's very specific questions. Yeah. It was funny. One of, our first show that we did, um, one of uh, a, a lady that works for us, um, we own a kickboxing fitness uh, franchise, a nine round. She works for us and she was at our very first show. Her husband has PTSD, um, law enforcement. He was retired because of his PTSD and he struggles. And so during our show, there was a shooting about 30 miles from Sacramento and it was a police officer was shot and killed that her husband had trained and put into the field. So she gets a text message during the show that says, call me as soon as you can. And she says right now, he goes, no, just as soon as you have a break, give me a call. So after the show's over, she calls him. He said, hey, officer, so-and-so was just murdered. Um, and she says, oh, I know you trained her. How are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm fine. She goes, well, I just heard that that means you're not really doing that well, but you don't want to really talk about it right now. And he goes, uh, yeah, that's pretty fair. She goes, all right, on a scale of one to 10, where are you at? He said, oh, I'm, I'm probably at a five. She goes, do you need me to come home? He goes, no, I'm home with the kids and I'm all right. Um, but, you know, just go ahead and finish your evening and come home. And so just... Because we had talked about that, she used it literally right as the show was done. And she said, they said it just changed their conversation that they would have had and the way they talked about it, that they had some tools now, you know, to be able that, that helped them get through that moment that was productive and helpful that they both understood. So, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's the power of these questions, right? Is it, yeah. it's not just opening up a, a dialogue, but it's, uh, it's actually causing, I can see how it's causing both parties to really reflect on. Yeah. this experience from both sides. Yeah. So it's fun. So that first question, they really name it and label it. The second one is really a good venting. The third one is a gratitude, really a good gratitude. Well, this is what others do that help me. Um, and it gets people to really think about how people help them. The next question is what do you do that makes it worse? And then we talk about, um, our isolation, um, believing lies that our brains are telling us. We talk about substance abuse. We talk about um, addiction. We talk about, um, you know, those things that really um, send us further into our dark holes, you know, um, us not talking about it, us not being honest with our family, with our friends, hiding it. You know, we can hide it good. I mean, I, I'm, it's only been the last two years I've honestly talked about it. I mean, I was, you know, I was sleeping with a gun in my hand, finger on the trigger, and then I would get up on stage for an hour, hour and a half and just make everybody laugh. And I laugh and everything's wonderful and great. And then I go back to the hotel room and, you know, you're back in that darkness. Um, and so we, um, yeah, so that uh, we talk about those things that are hurtful, that don't, uh, that send us, make it worse for us. And that's a really good um you know, we're taking inventory and stock of what we do and recognizing, wow, there's things I do that make it worse. You know, uh, one of our comics, Ellis Rodriguez, he says, he goes, I look at it like this. I've got a pet Ellis and I have to feed him. I got to make sure he sleeps. I got to take him out for a walk sometimes. And he goes, when I take care of my pet Ellis, then I do better. <laughs> when I, when I neglect my little pet Ellis, well, then my depression gets worse. Yeah, that's funny. And then our last question is, what do you do that, that makes it better? And we end it with that, just that um, recognizing the things that we do that help us with our depression. And then we talk about medications we take, that, what we like and don't like, um, how long it takes, how hard it is to find medications that work. 
Uh, we talk about exercise and fitness and, you know, eating and sleeping right and all those things that, you know, logically make sense. And we talk about therapy. Um, I talk about um, having, um, I call them my dead body club friends. And uh, you need to have somebody you'll call when you're standing on the bridge. When you're standing on the bridge and it's like, I just can't do this anymore. Who are the two or three people that you got to call? Hmm. Um, and you need to have some friends like that. And uh, those are, you know, we, we talk about the value of those friendships and what they mean. How do you get friends like that? Being vulnerable. How do you be honest? Um, we talk, I talk about recovery programs. Um, that's, that was a for me, I think that what led me up to being able to be honest was going through a recovery addiction recovery program and learning how to be vulnerable and share um, secrets that I thought I would take to my grave with me that I would share with people and they would share theirs with me. And uh, it creates a, just a closeness and a friendship that you can't get without, uh, you know, that kind of vulnerability and honesty. Well, it sounds like, I mean, the, the program and the whole uh, the whole venue sounds like a really fascinating, unique, and powerful approach to, to dealing with this subject. I mean, I love that you're taking something where you can bring people together. I think laughing brings people together. It it opens, you know, tears down some, some barriers. It opens up some avenues and then you've got it backed up with some really solid and meaningful questions. So, I mean, first off, kudos to creating this, this plan, this program, a way of having this dialogue. Thank you. It's where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do right now. Well, so where do you see it going in the future? I mean, it sounds like it's off to a phenomenal start doing some really It is. We're, um, from, before we did our very first show, I wanted it to be formatted so that it wasn't dependent on me. Uh, my big picture, my big dream is that I would have teams of comics all over the country performing this for high schools and colleges and corporate events and conventions and conferences. And so to do that, Um, I mean, the need for the show is bigger than what I could attend. And so I would love to have teams of comics, um, you know, in Southern California and have a Northern and a a West Coast and Eastern and the Midwest and have groups of comics that um, that this is its own thing that can be run by other groups and that I spend my time training them and showing them how to filter out, how to how to interview comics for it, how to build a camaraderie for when they go up on stage. Um, Right now, we're just... um, we're performing for Sac State University in October. We just signed contracts for that. They had 10 suicides at the university last year. Oh, wow. And so once we get one university, and that opens the door for more universities. Um, we've been talking with a Harvard professor. Um, they have such a high percentage of their med students that are on depression and anxiety meds. And so they're looking for ways to get them to talk about it and do some, you know, some preemptive mental health. Um, so we're talking with them. We've got, um, I went and toured Folsom prison a couple weeks ago. And so I'm working with a group. We want to shoot a comedy special about depression and suicide at Folsom prison for the inmates in the Greystone chapel that Johnny Cash sang about. So that's one of the projects that we're working on and trying to get happen. Um, you know, we have corporate clients that have wellness days for their employees and, uh, you know, for us to be there at that, those events and, uh, to create dialogue and show people what it looks like to talk about it. I love it. I love it. I love, uh, I love the whole, you know, purpose behind it. I love the progress that you're making. Um, I'm curious through this experience as you've kind of built and developed this, as you've thought through how to approach it in, in meaningful ways, what's, what's one thing that you feel is this a big takeaway for you that you've learned through this process? Um, I, 
Yeah, wow, that's a tough question, a big takeaway. That it's so different for everybody. Um, that everybody's story is, I mean, even though every, all of the comics, we all struggle with depression, everybody's story is so unique and there isn't a one size fits all. I always assumed if you struggle with depression, you were suicidal. And that's not true. And I sat down with comics and they go, oh, no, no, I have this deep, dark sadness and feel like I'm underwater and I can't get out, but I never think about suicide. Whereas me, it's like, that's my first go-to. It's like, ah, this sucks. Well, I could, you know, I hear a train coming. Can I make it? You know, those are the thoughts that'll go through my head when I have my depression. And, um, you know, some comics, it comes from childhood trauma. Um, others, it's, you know, just biology uh, in their brains. And I just, it's really made me see how unique everybody's story is. And also how... With the right questions, people are willing to talk about it. That's what's amazing, too, is that every, they, every, these, it's not just comics, but once we talk about it, people see what it's like to talk about it, and it just changes um, you know, the conversation. I'm, I'm amazed that, we, that an hour-and-a-half comedy show can have such an impact on, on people. That's, what, that's one of the big things that's been amazing for me. We had um, a guy that we knew struggled with depression. He came to our show with his wife. And he does some graphic arts. He was helping us with some logo design. I was over at his house and his wife came and sat down. She goes, I hated the show. I go, really? She goes, well, not what you guys did. She goes, but it, it was so eye-opening that I saw the way I treated my husband, that I was able to see what the depression looks like and feels like for him. And she said, when the show was over, I was outside sobbing because it was just eye-opening that um, I wasn't doing things that were helpful and I wasn't um, addressing it the way I should. And he said, he goes, it's funny, it was an hour and a half show. He goes, it changed our lives. It changed the way that we talk to each other now um, about it and the way uh, that we have a way to, to have a conversation. So I think um, as much as I believe in it, it's still amazing to see the impact it has on people um, that have come and the messages that we get. That's still, that's still, that, that kind of, that still blows me away a little bit. Well, I mean, that's the power of those questions. It's the power of the format. And obviously those are the things that are going to keep it going forward. Those success stories where people are sharing how powerful it can be. So if yeah. people want to, to learn more about it, they want to be involved, where, where should they go? So it's one degree of separation.life is our website. It's the number one, one degree of separation.life. And from there, you can see what shows we have coming up. There's contact information on there. Um, on Facebook, it's one degree of separation. Um, you can find me, uh, it's Brad Bonner Jr., B R A D B O N A R. Um, you can find me on Facebook and uh, connect with us that way. And we're always looking for venues, any place that we can, any place we can go. And, um, um, you know, it's this, uh, we need money to survive and to live, but this show is, isn't about that at all. It's just, uh, you know, the, the comics, the shows that we do, they say we, we'd rather put the money back into the business and don't pay us. Um, not for this, you know, when we have corporate events, we get more money for things. And so, but our public shows that we do at the comedy clubs, we're just doing a door take all the comics are now, nah, now nah, we don't, we just, we believe in this and we want this, you know, to succeed. And so if we need it for web design and that kind of stuff, so it's, um, but that's where you can reach us. One degree of separation dot life and uh, one degree of separation on Facebook. Use the number one. 
Awesome. And, and we'll put that in, uh, in our description when we release the podcast for everybody to be able to follow. Uh, definitely go check out Brad. Uh, his one degree of separation stuff is incredibly powerful, really trying to impact lives. Um, he's also got some stuff that's just funny that, that, that <laughs> doesn't relate to one degree of separation, but it's just good no. comedy. Uh, so check him out. Like I said, he's got some stuff on dry bar comedy, some other stuff on YouTube that you can find. Um, Brad, I just want to, one, thank you for being on the show. Two, thank you for trying to do some really powerful, meaningful work. Cool. Thanks, Kyle. Absolutely. Well, my friends, that has been another episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction with Brad Bonner Jr. and One Degree of Separation. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode.